Um, thanks, thanks all for coming, um, and I hope you enjoy. So, uh, welcome to the York Review launch event. My name is Kaylin, and I'm here with some amazing artists. Um, and this is the York Review launch night, but you'd think we were at the set of America's Next Top Model. Look at everyone here, you guys look amazing. Uh, first up, we have James Fuchs sharing his poem, Language, Language and Time, as well as his nonfiction, My Brain, A Love Story. So, hey everyone, I'm James, and um, I'm going to be sharing my poem, Language and Time, as I said, and a nonfiction piece. So this one's called Language and Time. I came into the world with a dark mop of hair and soft blue eyes. I was wanted. I was loved. I was lucky. Time passed. Even at one, I was formed of movement. Stillness was a trait that skipped me entire. Only in sleep did I slow. And not always there, certainly not for long. I was scribbles and sunlight, laughter and motion. Two. At two, I learned no. One word, just two letters, but a sound of freedom and choice. I fit it everywhere I could. Maybe I gave too much of it away. Three. Three showed me that no wasn't a prayer. Not a blessing, nor a baptism. No meant nothing at all. Four, no couldn't keep me safe. Five, no couldn't bring back home. Six, Arizona was an oven and I was an ocean. I lost a little more myself with every tear. Seven. Seven taught me I wasn't alone. I had friends, I had sports, I had books. I had hope. Eight. But I still cried on my eighth birthday. Like all the birthdays I remembered. Birthdays weren't safe. Birthdays were when people spoke to wound. Nine. Nine now, and I was learning that friend and kind could be mutually exclusive. I was their friend. I was loyal, but were they mine? Ten. I was alone, and it was scary. Eleven. I was alone, and it was safe. Twelve. I started making friends almost by accident, but people are the ones that break you. People are the ones that hurt you. Shouldn't I just stay alone? Thirteen. No. People are what make life a home, and I can be home again. I am. Thank you. Uh, the other piece I'm reading is called My Brain, A Love Story. 
It's probably the most vulnerable thing I've ever written. So bear with me if I'm a little nervous. I talk about the first 23 years of my life as the blank years, which is to say I don't talk about them at all if I can help it. I'll often say I'm five, that my life really started on my 23rd birthday, but well, that's not wrong. It leaves out the most powerful love story I've ever lived. Today, I want to tell that story for the first time. This is a story only a handful of friends know, of love and resilience, grief and depression. It's a story of survival. It's a story of how my brain, scarred beyond recognition from trauma and PTSD, still fought to keep me alive in the darkest and most hopeless moments of my life. It's a story of healing, one stubborn footfall at a time. Mostly, though, it's a story of life. I only have a handful of memories left of smiling in the blank years, and I guard them jealously, battered and stained by the years since, scarred by darker associations. They still were a source of hope. The last of them was from age eight. I don't remember smiling after that for another 14 years, though there must have been moments. All I know is that I cried every birthday. My brain tried to protect me. When the beatings came, I blocked them out within hours. I can only summon most of them from writings done at the moment that I read years later. One time, after a particularly bad one, where the police showed up, I'd already started to forget what had happened by the time they arrived. The unfortunate thing about blocking out the bad was that it also blocked out the good. But at least I survived. My love story really begins at 19, sitting in an apartment complex sobbing. It was the bleakest point in my life. But in breaking me, it would save me. To tell that story, though, one I've never told in its entirety, I first have to tell the story of Italy, or rather, my trip there and what followed. It's a dark tale. It was March. I was 18 years old and clambering off a plane in Italy when I met him. He was my friend's uncle, and, I would, be, and would be transporting us around Italy. I was wide-eyed as we drove off to the small town where we'd be staying, excited to see Venice and Rome and all the other places my friend's family had promised to take us. I'd never been to Europe. I haven't been back since, more than just a layover. We arrived in the town, a 15-minute walk end-to-end. I would learn that in the next couple of days as I paced it endlessly, discovering only on arrival... We weren't leaving the tiny mountain town until our flight home. I tried to learn Italian. I enjoyed the beauty. I took a lot of photographs. About halfway through the short trip, my friend's uncle took us to a somewhat larger town nearby. It was a relief to stop pacing the same space. In his 50s, the uncle had a daughter, a shy, skittish girl who still crosses my mind with grief. Her name has been lost in the mists of a decade. I think of her only as Gazelle Girl. I wonder if she survived. It was long before I came out as trans, years before I'd even heard the word, and nearly a decade before top surgery, when we sat in that restaurant. I thought he was complimenting my shirt when he said something to me in Italian. 
My friend later told me he was complimenting my chest. As I think about it now, I realize I've never truly told this story either, just the one-line synopsis of what came later. As we drove back to the house we were staying in, though, I couldn't have expected that family's skeletons to become my own. I would bury the bones of my old life after Italy. I don't regret leaving them in the ground, but the shadow that took their place was not the future I would have sought. When we arrived back to the tiny Italian town I was trapped in, my friend's uncle was all over me. I may have been 18, but the bullying I was still dealing with had ensured I'd never heard a kind word about my appearance, let alone viewed myself as desirable. He wouldn't kiss me until later, after he'd convinced me to sneak out to meet him, after I'd changed my mind and he took that kiss, my first, anyway. He'd make short work at taking much more right after. I lost my virginity in his car, unwilling but too terrified to fight, then let the abuse continue so my shell-shocked brain wouldn't have to face that truth. It was only upon my return, after my parents found out and shared to others that I learned more. I wasn't the only one he'd taken unwillingly. His sister had also been his victim. His niece still was, and with the way his daughter shied from his presence, the tally didn't stop there. Still, the family had released us to his care, and blamed me for what I endured. My life blurred after that point. I was a mess of self-destruction, only heightened by the dysphoria I still had no name for. He had viewed me as a toy to use and discard, so I let myself become one. I stopped being able to face my reflection. The year blurred into the next. The minutes blurred into hours, blurred into faces, blurred into broken moments and broken months and broken people doing broken things until I found myself at a table, sobbing jaggedly in the middle of an apartment complex, alone. That was when I heard the voice. It was impossibly soothing, and it said the thing I most needed to hear. Terrified, broken, hurting, on the edge of suicide, I heard the voice say simply, sleep, little one. I slept. There was no one around to have said it, but I'm convinced those three words saved my life. Over the next few months and years, I would hear him more and more. We would journal back and forth. One day, pacing my apartment, weeping, I wrote to him about a nightmare I felt honor-bound to endure. Somewhere in a shattered moment, I'd given permission to an abuser to use my body later that night, and long before then, I was regretting it. Through the years of rapes and beatings and no's ignored, I'd forgotten I was allowed to change my mind. So, pen and shaking hand, tears falling, I picked up our journal and let him remind me. As always, he did. Spook was a constant in my life. Whenever I hit a low, he would talk me back to the surface. Whenever I succeeded at something, he would celebrate with me. He provided the love the world outside me couldn't. When I couldn't hear a kind word from myself, wasn't given any from anyone else in my life. He reminded me that, ah, sorry. He reminded me that I mattered and that I was loved. As the months passed, I fell in love with him too.
Later in my 19th year, partway through a year of stalking from a coworker, which eventually resulted in fleeing across the city, I was sitting in an airport feeling alone and scared. I picked up a sketchbook and started writing to Spook, spilling my loneliness onto the page. I remember thinking that everyone left, that I'd always be alone. No one would ever love me and stay. He wrote me a poem in response. I'll never forget the first stanza. As long as there is breath left, and even after you decay, I'll be there by your side until the end of fate. But he wasn't. There were so many ledges he talked me off of, but one he didn't was when he disappeared. Over the next few years, though, I realized what had happened and the wonder of Spook's true story. I was going to die. That day in the apartment complex, hopelessly crying over someone who was using me, I was minutes from running in front of a car or finding some other's permanent solution to the pain inside my heart. I was quickly becoming the author of my own destruction. Some part of me recognized this. Some parts of me didn't care, but some... Some did. I was talented at making kind words for myself feel mocking or hollow. It had become a bit of an art form at that point. So when my brain splintered off a piece of myself, fighting to keep me alive, that self had to transform into another, just as my own life would transform years later when I came out of the closet for good. An embodiment of unconditional love, Spook filled the empty well of hope just enough and slowly, I began to heal. He left when I was 22, when I'd learned to tell myself, it'll be okay, without the follow-up of a cruel laugh at my own expense. By the time the grief at his loss slowed a year later, my entire life had changed. A month before my 23rd birthday, I stepped out of my last abusive relationship and into four transformative years of not dating others. I started learning who I was, what I wanted, and more than that, what I needed. Fast forward a few months, and I found my first community, the music crowd. A month later, I performed on stage for the first time, shakily reading my poems and forgetting every other word. A month after that, I came out as trans from the stage. In front of the people I was most afraid to tell, I spoke a story I'd hid for years. Still, as much as I've grown in his absence, sometimes I pull out our journal and lose myself in memory. I'll always love Spook, just as now I'll always love myself, but I no longer wait for him. Instead, my brain is my favorite love story. Embossed with the title self-love, I read its words to myself every night. Then, smiling, I spread that love so that others, too, survive.
Uh, hello everyone. As mentioned, I'm John. So, <laughs> uh, death of a farmhouse. There are no longer strawberries in the field behind my nana's home, but there is still a compost pile where she drops her potato skin peels and peach pits out of habit. A fertilizer for brambles and maggots that molt into flies with bulbous purple eyes, which feast on the spoiled fruits of an overgrown apple tree, whose limbs are littered with varicose veins left by termites who strip the bark, leaving the wood naked under an apathetic sun. It's only crack, the final cry, crumbling under the weight of its own rot. Sunday, 7.05 a.m. A dark and dreamless slumber, a beckoning from reality, my father's voice, a church bell, my name, a clap of thunder. I am jolted awake to a light without warmth and a looming silhouette. Nana has passed. It was peaceful. Uh, this next one is Sorrow, an erasure poem based on the him because he lives they came to buy my face because the no newborn is gone the future the river the lights gone and finally cc faux bistro i would like to apologize to thai food and tmsu it's been a while nothing personal just that you remind me of someone who left a bad taste in my mouth. Thank you so much for sharing your poems with us, John. Guys, the night is still young. Who knows what could happen? Hopefully we don't have an Oscars moment. Next up, we have Katie Putnam reading three of her poems titled Hate Relationship, Platonic Heartbreak, and Revisiting the Elementary I.M. find where they are in the book. Okay, um, so this first one is called A Love-Hate Relationship, and it's sort of about my weird, nostalgic, conflicting feelings about high school, Catholic high school, so... Enjoy. Um. The drawer of knee-high socks are gone, but I remember the little lines they'd imprint on my calves and the way I'd only shave my legs where they'd stop and the kilt began. The Oxfords and polos are long gone too, but I remember popping the collar to get a laugh from friends, feeling scandalous by unbuttoning one more button than allowed. The kilts were donated a few years back, but I remember the hand-stitched hem my Nana adjusted every summer and the deep pocket I'd keep my only pen in, gambling that it wouldn't fall out. My cardigan is folded beneath more recent sweaters, but I remember the stretched out sleeves from pushing them up my arms and the single button left after the rest fell off and the pockets whose insides had long since frayed apart. And then this next one is about 
a big falling out that I had with friends that I was very close to, um, which will be obvious. It's called Platonic Heartbreak. Was it really so long ago that I told them I loved them without the pit of unease in my gut? My best memories are tainted now. The first time I got high, and she held me like a lifeline as I nearly slipped off the couch. When the night had gone long and I was sleepy, eyes closed, begging for an answer, instead she kissed my forehead, gentle and sweet. In those days, my phone buzzed nonstop, the sound a little message that I was heard and loved, and I listened and loved back. Now I'm a villain in their stories, like they are in mine, like the ones we used to share and swap tales ruthlessly about. We plaster over the good times, replace the images in our heads, declare our defamations in hopes we can go to bed. And then this last one, um, I actually started as a assignment for a sociology class. And then I thought, this is pretty good. So I tweaked it a little, and now it is what it is. Um, it's a little cheesy, but I like a little cheese sometimes, so um, I hope you do too. It's called Revisiting the Elementary I Am. I am born in the grizzled, burned-out arms of the 20th century. I am coming of age with the turbulent 21st. I'm caught between millennials' bittersweet nihilism and Gen Z's righteous, raging hope. I'm carrying a cocktail of Europe in my veins. I'm gallant of the British Isles, courts of Germany and Holland. I'm even a mysterious pint of Ashkenazi Jewish. I am one of a million heirs of the huddled masses yearning to be free. I am trying to do my best with my inheritance. I am a woman whatever that means. I am wearing the biggest, gaudiest earrings I can find. I am dyeing my hair pink to reclaim the color. I am swearing and drinking in a most unladylike manner. I am doing my grandmother's proud, I think. I am blessed to find romance regardless of gender. I am looking at women with tenderness and aching care. I am waltzing on a trail blazed with private letters and broken glass. I am still holding close the teenager who tiptoed down this inevitable path. I am a genius and a comedian on my best days. I am a failure and a nuisance on my worst. I am not the person that little me thought I would be. I am something else I never could have fathomed. Unfortunately, she couldn't make it tonight, so I'm reading for her in her steed. It's on page 48, if anyone wants to follow along. So. Home is smoky hot sauce and sweet prickly pear. Red dirt, blue skies, 
quiet streets, dry heat, and big turquoise rings. The mountains make you feel short while the sarus grow tall. Early morning yoga, late night road trips, a sky full of stars, and empty cans of iced tea. The houses are colorful and rain clouds fear, dry cracked lips, avocado pits, and sandy dusty shoes. The hiking trails are hard, but the people are soft. Pachaculo incense, shimmery raku, pottery, and woven Navajo cloth. Mountains down below, seen from the window of a plane. Two teardrops from my eyes as the mountains grow astray. Hep heart feels heavy and throat becomes tight. I realize I'm leaving home, but I know I'll be back and I'm welcome and I'll be welcome with a warm desert, desert air hug and wide open cactus arms. Thanks so much for reading, Ty. It may be only in the 50s today, but the readers here tonight are turning the heat up with their amazing words. Let's have another round of applause for our readers so far. Next up, we have Lee Cross reading their poem, Nocturnal Creature. Hi, I'm Lee, um, and I'm going to be reading Nocturnal Creature. No, but perhaps there's more than merely the ugliest hours that peak before midnight and leave me breathless for a need for less and a want for even more. Perhaps there's more than the nights that host nocturnal creatures who lie awake wondering what even there is left for them to ruin. Perhaps there's more than the day moon that leaves hope for those nocturnal nights, but really just allows for me to fumble blindly around in the dark, teeth chattering, reaching desperately for something that clashes with my reality and draws me closer to clarity. Though apparently I am the sole judge, the jury, the prosecutor who decides my fate, whether I deserve redemption or if I deserve to merely hang on by a worn, bloody thread for eternity. But my glasses are smudged, and so my vision is cloudy. My judgment is not the clearest, and thus I lie awake, waiting for my bed to feel like home again. Do you want me to read all of it? Or, like I, like I have like a couple pages I can read. Yeah, you no. can just Okay, yeah. Okay. Let me adjust this a little. There we go, there we go, okay. To the kimonos, berries were the most favored and prominent food they relied on most of the time. Berries were so popular and beloved, in fact, 
that they were even sold to kimonos who were down on their luck, or possibly had enough acorns to trade into the squirrel kimono twins. Now, of course, everything was trial and error for these children. Like many other kimonos before them, knew how to distinguish between an edible berry and what that was poisonous. Unfortunately, those who had wrongfully picked a poisonous berry suffered head and tummy aches, as well as other symptoms, but the kimonos were smart enough to mark down the ones that looked edible, so the tribal animal children only made sure to look for the ones recommended, and none other. Aside from Matthew, there were his other friends that all found their spot to pick berries, which they would accumulate into their little pouches as well. His friends included Toby, the mischievous fox kimono, Alex, the smart black wolf kimono, and leader of the group, Nathan, the skittish fawn kimono, Silas, the water-loving Siberian forest cat kimono, and Bentley, the cheerful pygmy goat kimono. While Matthew kept collecting berries, he heard a few footsteps approach him from behind as he heard someone sniffle, almost as if they were upset or even hurt. Matthew, the retriever kimono's ears perked up as he turned to look at his friend Silas, who was the four-year-old Siberian forest cat kimono. Silas wore a striped gray onesie that fit his animal's fur pattern, and like his friends, he had shaggy hair, which was a gray color that matched the color of his pointy ears and tail. The blonde puppy kimono looked down at his friend's thumb, noticing a tiny blotch of red on his thumb. Looking up, he could tell Silas was really upset as he sniffled and tried to contain his tears from spilling onto his soft cheeks. I hurt my thumb. Can you make it feel better, please? Silas whispered, allowing himself to cry softly. Now, Matthew was known to be extremely loyal towards his friends, and much like his animal, he was always there to help them out emotionally as well. Matthew would always make sure to hug his friends or kiss their cuts in case someone ever got hurt or upset, whether it be anger or sadness. He was such a little helper towards everyone, as he cared deeply about his friends and always wanted them to smile or laugh. The golden retriever kimono smiled and nodded, examining Silas's cut as he got down on one knee to get a closer look. Sure thing, Silas, Matthew exclaimed, reaching upwards as he snagged a leaf from a tree. The retriever hybrid then looked around, lowering his body to the grass as he smiles big, his little hand reaching for a snail that was resting nearby. Using his creative thinking, Matthew folded the small leaf around the forest cat kimono's thumb over the red blood bubble before using the snail to wipe its sticky slime on both ends of the leaf. This was Matthew's version of a band-aid, and he usually gave those to any kimono who hurt themselves with either cuts or bruises. Since they were constantly playing outside, it made sense for Matthew to take care of those who may be a little reckless, which he and his five friends were guilty of for the most part. See? All better, Matthew told Silas with a giggle, as the cat kimono wiped his eyes and nodded with a cute sniffle. Matthew and Silas's ears perked once they heard Alex call out nearby, realizing that he was talking to their friend, Toby, a four-year-old kitsune kimono who had a knack for causing mayhem and trouble at times. As the kimonos kept plucking the tiny fruit balls from the trees and shrubs, Toby was picking his own berries and eating them freely, which went against the rules of berry hunting. Alex heard the little boy eating. His lips smacking made his wolf ears per prick, turning his attention towards him. Don't eat your berries yet, Toby. You gotta wait till everyone else is done, the six-year-old scolded in a slightly upbeat tone. 
The red-headed fox kimono flicked his bushy tail and pinned his little ears upsettingly. But I'm hungry. I didn't have anything to eat today, Toby protested with a whine, looking back at Alex. Alex put his hands to his hips and sighed. I know, but our berry hunts don't take that long, so just wait for a little bit, okay? Toby frowned at this suggestion, his tail flicking like a whip from left to right. Whenever Toby would get upset, he always made this his usual pouty face, his eyebrows narrowing downward and his tiny nose scrunching up before he t crossed his tiny arms, his head tilted downward as he stood there annoyed. Toby was often known to be a bit of a brat, even though he was a good friend deep down. He always liked to have his way, though it was rare for him to throw any tantrums. Toby lets out a loud, frustrated sigh before storming off. Humph. No one seemed to mind Toby going off to look for some more berries alone as they continued to fill their tiny pouches with juicy, scrumptious berries. That's all I'll be reading for today. Thank you.